Hey everyone, before we get into the show today, I wanted to take a moment and acknowledge the shooting at Michigan State University last month. To everyone affected by it, and we all were in some respect, our hearts go out to you. Everyone at MCYJ is thinking of you, and I'm with you. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Table, conversations on youth justice. I'm your host, Hussein Hadri. Last month, we talked about the juvenile public defense system. Today's topic is the Michigan Child Care Fund. One of the recurring topics on our show has been that kids belong at home with their families and their communities as much as possible. And as much as this has been rigorously studied, it should make a lot of sense on its own. Stability is crucial for youth development. Last season, we discussed MCYJ's 2021 report, COVID-19 in the Michigan Youth Justice System. The gist of that was that as a result of the pandemic, the juvenile justice system had to streamline its approach, focusing as much as possible on diversion and community-based solutions because it was so dangerous to have youth packed together facilities. Counties pivoted to intensive supervision programs, which we'll touch on later in the show, and community-based alternatives to secure detention. They used screening tools to evaluate risks and needs. Essentially, the COVID-19 pandemic forced counties to reimagine their juvenile justice system, and we took a collective leap in the right direction. We've done it once, so let's try to keep doing it. Today, I want to focus on one aspect of that, the Michigan Child Care Fund. In parts one and two of our show, I'm going to talk about what the Child Care Fund is. In part three, we'll hear from Tom Laddig. He's the president of the Michigan Association for Family Court Administration and the juvenile court director at the 20th Circuit Court in Ottawa County. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. We covered a wide range of topics. You'll learn that he's very thoughtful and experienced, and he has a nuanced view on every issue. Uh, he's a good man and has done a lot of great work. I'm really excited to have him on the show. We'll wrap the show with a few small updates. Enjoy today's show. The Child Care Fund is a pretty complex topic, but you can get a broad overview of it by looking at the Michigan Child Care Fund Handbook which is published by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. It outlines the laws, regulations, structure, and funding of the Child Care Fund. I'll link it in the show notes. I can't promise it'll be a thrilling read. That said, the Child Care Fund is an interesting program, and it's critical to the juvenile justice system in Michigan. We've talked at length on this show about how Michigan's juvenile justice system is decentralized. Well, the Child Care Fund brings together each of those actors. It's a collaboration between circuit courts, county government, tribes, the state of Michigan. They collaborate to develop an annual plan and budget, which is submitted to MDHHS, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. MDHHS reviews and approves the annual plan and budget, and then the county can submit monthly reimbursement requests, which MDHHS reviews and approves, and this is the primary way that funding for the juvenile justice system is structured. But there's a fundamental flaw, which the governor's juvenile justice task force pointed out last year. They said that the child care fund, 
quote, requires a court referral and the provision of intensive supervision, which makes it challenging for jurisdictions to use these dollars for pre-court or pre-arrest diversion, end quote. Now, before I talk about intensive supervision, it makes sense why that's a problem, right? Ideally, the juvenile justice system would be set up to encourage pre-court and pre-arrest diversion. Not only would this implement the well-tested theory that keeping kids out of the system is altogether a good thing and has positive long-term outcomes, but it would lessen the load on the juvenile justice system, the load it ultimately has to bear when kids who need those services the most eventually arrive. So rather than to avoid justice involvement, the Child Care Fund requires a court referral and the provision of intensive supervision. That's a problem. That's why the task force identified this as their number one priority. Now, the stated goal of the Child Care Fund's reimbursement program is to ensure funding for programs that provide services aimed at keeping youth at home through successful intervention and rehabilitation programs and to assist in achieving permanency for kids in a safe and timely manner. So the way it works is that counties implement programs that meet the stated goals of the Child Care Fund, and then they submit reimbursement requests to MDHHS, which then approves those requests and reimburses the county at a certain percentage. Now, the Child Care Fund has a set of expenditures and programs that are eligible for reimbursement. The others are not. At the top, I'm going to mention Raise the Age which has arguably been MCYJ's greatest policy achievement to this point. As a reminder, this brought 17-year-olds into the juvenile justice system when they otherwise would not have had access to juvenile justice services. Of course, with the influx of kids into the system, this costs money. So the state, in enacting Raise the Age, decided it would reimburse 100% of the cost of providing juvenile justice services to these 17-year-olds. Other programs have different reimbursement rates, but we'll get into that in a second. For RTA, it's 100%. We're going to focus for the purposes of this episode on in-home care programming, which is an eligible expenditure under the Child Care Fund. In-home care programs are an alternative to out-of-home care. And for an in-home care program to be eligible for reimbursement, it has to fit into one of four boxes, but I'm only going to talk about two that are relevant to this episode. Up first are programs that serve as an alternative to out-of-home care, provided that they meet several requirements. First, either the court has ordered or parents have agreed that the youth is to receive in-home care services. And second, the youth receives intensive care. Now, I mentioned intensive care earlier. Here's what that means. In an intensive care program, the worker-to-youth ratio can be no more than 1 to 20, which is, of course, costly, but it's also important that the staff isn't stretched too thin. An additional requirement is that youth must have regular face-to-face contact with someone that's helping them, and barring extraordinary circumstances, it has to be in person. No phone, text, FaceTime, that does not count for the purposes of intensive care. Again, in theory, that's great, but not all youth need that in order to be successful and get back on track. Intensive care is a pretty high burden to meet. It's a requirement here. 
So in order to be reimbursed for in-home care at all by the state, they have to provide intensive care to all the youth. Counties don't get to match up the level of supervision to the youth's risk level. Or they can, but they won't be reimbursed if they're not providing intensive care to that youth. Juvenile justice is so situation-specific, right? Every youth has their own set of problems, and the county can't just use a broad brush and try to address each of those problems in a systematic way. It has to be tailored to the youth, and this is where counties are running into problems with the child care fund. The other eligible program I'll mention is related to early return programs. While kids are away, efforts should be made to accelerate the return from out-of-home placement. So the reimbursement program makes early return programs eligible for reimbursement provided certain requirements are met. Now, the current reimbursement rate for detention and residential placement, this is out-of-home placement, is 50% meaning that for every $2 spent by the county on residential services, the state will cover one of those dollars. The reimbursement rate for community-based programs, which I just described, is also 50%. So you have two options, out-of-home placement for the kid, which has its own requirements and challenges, and then in-home care, but the program has to provide intensive services. It's not the easiest choice, and there isn't really an incentive for counties to encourage in-home care. It's expensive and it's challenging and there's a group of kids that could benefit from in-home care, but they might not get it because the county would have to provide intensive services if they're kept home. Now, after all that, and I know that was a lot, it shouldn't surprise you that this was identified unanimously as a problem by the members of the task force. Each of the 22 members between judges, legislators, county commissioners, and the lieutenant governor and the now chief justice, everyone across the political spectrum agreed that this is a problem. When we come back from this break, I'll talk about what's being done to fix it. Welcome back. In part one of our show, we talked about the child care fund and some of the problems in the way that it's structured. As I mentioned, the governor's juvenile justice task force recognized the problems with the child care fund and it unanimously recommended certain changes to it. In fact, this is item number one on the task force's list of priorities. And for good reason, this is the primary mechanism by which the state is funding local juvenile justice programs. Now, I want to go back to the decentralized justice system thing for a second. I think it's important to understand what we're trying to achieve here. Each county has the leeway to do its own thing, and for good reason. Each county has different needs. Each county has particular problems it's trying to solve. That's not the issue we're trying to solve when we talk about eliminating justice by geography. What we're hoping to change is what's considered to be the minimum, the floor, of what a county can provide. So leveraging the child care fund would allow the state to set a minimum level of service and programming 
from counties, but it would also allow the state to strengthen and incentivize what is working and what's best. So the state at the aggregate level can see what the best practices are statewide and raise the bar for every county in the state and also fund it in that way. So let's be specific. First off, the reimbursement rate needs to be adjusted. The task force proposed maintaining the reimbursement rate for residential services like detention and out-of-home placement at 50%. Nothing changes on that front. But for community-based programs, that reimbursement rate would go up from 50% to 75%. This would create an incentive for county systems to encourage in-home care. But it would also eliminate the intensive service requirements so that counties could match the level of supervision to the risk level of the youth. Local courts would have the flexibility starting with pre-arrest diversion all the way through the moment that the youth re-enter society at the end of the process. But with the change to the reimbursement rates, the child care fund will also come with some other requirements. First off, counties would have to adopt a validated risk screening and assessment tool for use during the diversion and disposition processes. You can think of this in its most basic form as a chart or a survey that someone might have to fill out after or while meeting with a youth. It might include the number of arrests the youth has had, whether any of their friends or justice involved, whether they've had issues with teachers, if they've ever been suspended from school, or whether they were raised by a single parent, etc., etc. And just as an aside, in preparing for this episode, I looked through no less than a dozen different versions of risk assessment tools, and I'm sure we could make a whole episode out of how they work and what problems they face. But here's a thought exercise for you. Take some time to think about this. How can a facially neutral risk assessment tool, just asking questions, that considers everything from demographic information to adjudication history and friendships and familial relationships, all that. How can a tool like that eliminate the possibility that youth have disparate outcomes? Now, a rudimentary risk assessment tool like the simple one I just described might have a higher risk index for youth of color simply because they're more likely to have been raised by a single parent or be in a particular kind of area or surrounded by particular group of friends. If you were developing a risk assessment tool, how would you mitigate that problem? It's challenging and it's been studied for a long time. The good news is that risk assessment tools like this exist across the United States and they get better every day. We have to put a pin in that discussion for the time being. That's definitely one to come back to in the future. This is critical. And the point here is that these are well-tested, rigorously developed, and they would only be applied in our state if they were validated. So the child care fund can be leveraged to incentivize in-home care, and it can be used to require that the states employ validated risk assessment tools along the way. It can also be used as a mechanism to consistently use and implement research-based approaches and policies. Now look, implementing risk assessment tools and promoting community-based care these changes aren't going to solve all of our problems. They're not going to solve the racial disparity issue or the residential placement issue, but they will be steps in the right direction. The governor's most recent budget proposal allocated 
$31.9 million to implementing the task force's number one priority, everything we've outlined today. That's a huge step in the right direction. When we come back from our break, I have two other small updates related to the governor's budget proposal that relate to juvenile justice. But for now, this, the change to the child care fund, this is a big one. And we should look forward to when these changes are applied. Our guest today is Tom Laddig. He is the president of the Michigan Association for Family Court Administration and the juvenile court director at the 20th Circuit Court in Ottawa County. Tom, thanks so much for being on the show. I want to start by asking you, how long have you been doing this work? Wow. Well, in total in juvenile justice, uh, going on 31 years. 31 years. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and a variety of roles. I've, I've worked in detention as a youth specialist and been a probation officer and a middle manager and now the fortune of being a court director. So I've been able to experience that. I also ran a residential program for boys um, for a couple of years. Can you talk about what's been the most challenging aspect of your work throughout your career and now in your current position? Wow. Yeah, there's there's definitely been challenges. I, I really think that um, the inability to affect systematic change, um, you know, being a probation officer for quite a few years and working in facilities where I had direct contact with youth, you always get to experience the joy of working with youth and and the successes they have often in what you're trying to do. I mean, you know, every youth is different, so the outcome could be different for each youth. But I think generally getting into management and learning the broad nature of how systematic change needs to happen is challenging for me because I, I'm one that wants to get it done. Like if we say we're going to do something, let's do it, you know, and understanding the layers of red tape that we have to go through at times to affect change, especially when it comes to changing the the life trajectory of youth has been probably the most challenging part for me. I mean, again, it's all perspective and what role I serve, but I think in the context of this conversation, um, really, really embracing this reform process to affect the change that's necessary for juvenile justice in Michigan has alleviated some of that, that challenge of the pain in the past. One of the things that I feel is really lacking in the conversation surrounding youth justice is the actual experiences, the lived experiences of justice-impacted individuals. You've been in this field for a long time. You've worked with a lot of them. You've met a lot of them, gotten to know them. Can you talk about the experiences of any particular justice-impacted individuals that you've worked with and how it's affected you? Yeah, I, I can think of a couple kids. When I was a probation officer back in Lansing, um, it's probably been you know 15 years now, um, one day I was sitting in my office and the front window called and said, hey, so-and-so's here to see you. And I'm like, okay. I really didn't know the name, remember the name at the time, but I went to the front door, brought the youth back to my, who was then adult, an adult now, came back to my um, office and chatted and he was 20, 23 or 24 years old at the time and had two or three kids and was telling me that 
he'd been in and out of jail the last few years. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, where's the success coming? And he goes, you know, Tom, I always remembered, you know, you just continue to tell me that success will come if you stay committed to the processes, that there's going to be barriers, whether they're systematic barriers, people barriers, or just life in general, they're, they're going to be there. But you're smart enough, you're capable enough, you're resourceful enough to make it. You know, and it's all relative, right? Like, who are we to define your success? And he goes, I never forgot that. And now I'm the executive chef at a local restaurant across the street from the Capitol. Oh, you man. know, um, yep, I've been to jail and I've got a couple of kids that I got to take care of, but I'm moving forward in my career. And it wasn't easy, but I just remember the conversations young that it wasn't over because I did something wrong. And I was like, yeah, that's it, right? Like, it, it doesn't have to be over. It's not a hole you can't get out of. There are people that will help you. So that that was really an impact on me. Um, and then just uh, when I was working residential as, an, as, a, as a director, uh, just about 10 years ago, well, a little over 10 years ago, um, I was in a new role and I happened to go take a tour of a facility and this youth came up to me and said, hey, Tom, do you remember me? And again, I'm like, I worked with hundreds of kids and I'm like, oh, sure. You know, and I'm like, how are you doing? And I really didn't remember his name specifically. He goes, but I never, he goes, I just wanted to tell you that that time, um, at that time I was working in a residential program and we had a lake and we would take the kids fishing as an alternative to like sit down therapy. So we'd go and we'd chat. And again, my role wasn't a therapist, I'm not licensed, but I often, if kids were challenged, even as a director, I would go pull a youth aside and say, how can I help you? And I, I had happened to take this kid down to the lake and do some fishing. And we just were talking about life, you know, in, in a very non-threatening manner. And he goes, I, I, I just remember that day you took me fishing. And I'm like, oh, great. I, I enjoyed myself too. And it's like, you just don't know when you're going to change the trajectory of somebody's life. And, and so I remember those two examples because as the court director now, I get the fortune of meeting with all new employees. And I always tell them, I'm an attitude guy. Um, certainly, you got to have a degree and get your education and work in this field. But if you don't have the heart to do it, you really shouldn't be here. And if you can't come to work with your A game every day, then you probably shouldn't be here because you don't know what you're going to do today to change a kid's life one way or another, good or bad. You know, and I want to be good, you know. And so you've got to come in the front door with your A game every day because you're responsible for not building a car, but the future life of a young person. And that is more responsibility than anybody I think knows when they go to college. Like I didn't learn that when I went to college, right? I was like, I learned that when I got in there, like, whoa, wait a minute. These kids are counting on me to help them navigate this tricky world we live in. And so right. that's why those two examples resonated with me, because my mentor kind of taught me that, like, you got to come to work ready every day because they depend on you to change the trajectory of their life. And if you don't do it in a manner that's caring, compassion, it's probably going to go the other way. You know, what's fascinating about your answer is that I've asked this question to a lot of folks that have worked in juvenile justice and they've seen their fair share of sad stories of tragedies of course but almost to a person whenever i ask folks why they work in juvenile justice why they advocate for reform right which is i'm asking them what problems they want to fix and how to how to fix them everyone always goes to the success stories right they always go to i met this youth 
and it changed his or her life and that inspired me to keep doing the work rather than I saw this terrible situation and I'm in the work because I want to continue doing that. Shifting gears here, let's talk about Ottawa County specifically. Can you tell us about the state of juvenile justice in Ottawa County? What challenges are you facing in that county specifically? I've had the fortune of really having good leadership. Our county has been very supportive. Um, in prior years, our board has been very uh, fun, fun friendly um, to our budgets so that we could do things like create a school for youth that are suspended or long-term or long-term suspended and expelled, continuing to allow us to engage in bringing in a risk and needs assessment to make good predispositional decisions um, and continue to support our detention center, which is the only American Correctional Association accredited facility in the state of Michigan, which means we have a higher standard of care that's that's driven to uh, that's given to us and drives us to be better um, because our, our county and court administration have believed in that. So I've been very fortunate. And then, of course, the staff saying, I mean, I mean, we got a great group of staff, you know, they you know, we're not always perfect, but they work hard, they care about kids, and, you know, they're sometimes challenged about the things we're trying to do. We just implemented a graduated response as a probation model, and if you know anything about that, it's it's really a, an assessment-driven practice that, you know, back in my day, 30 years ago, we used my gut a little bit, and I realized <laughs> that my gut is really only good for telling me I'm hungry, um, <laughs> probably not the best thing to tell me how to put a case plan together. And so our staff have, uh, have adopted uh, the graduate responses and adapted to the challenges of it, that they have to have this objective view and objective set of standards to make good case plan decisions. And so, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have a really good team of administrators that work with me and a great group of staff that care deeply and passionately about kids because they know how I feel about that. Like, Again, uh, the first thing they hear out of me is it's great that you got a master's degree, but I got to know you care about kids because there's a bigger belief and purpose here. Right. Absolutely. Can you talk about the debt-free justice campaign, by the way? That's the elimination of juvenile court debt in Michigan. Where does Ottawa County stand in that regard? And how do you feel about the elimination of juvenile court debt in Michigan? Yeah, so we're we're in the process of evaluating. I've, I've kept in close contact with Jason and uh, the work that you've done in Macomb County, and 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 you know I'm I'm really proud of that work for Macomb County, and I think it's important work. Um, like anybody, the stress of money creates a whole other set of challenges for people, and I think that where we are here is we're we're evaluating. We we still assess fees and costs. Um, uh, we're not great at collections. Um, surprise, surprise, right? Like it's hard to get money from folks that often don't have money. And I don't mean that negatively. It's just reality, right? I mean, right. Um, and so we're in the process of evaluating the next steps for us and how to address that issue here in Ottawa County. Um, again, we have very supportive administration and judges. It's just putting out a plan, to be honest with you and how to execute that plan along with our funding unit here to make sure that it makes sense for everybody. Um, as far as the legislation, I think it's good legislation, um, at least proposed legislation. Um, I think, again, it's just one of those areas where if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I think that you know the mindset was the way to get punishment was to collect money. 
And I think we've learned through brain science and trauma-informed care and just, just better awareness around um, what is really happening in people's lives, you know, um, there's a better way to do things. And right. it doesn't always have to involve the assessment of money as a, as a consequence. Right. We've talked about how we believe at the Michigan Center for Youth Justice that empathy should really be at the center of policymaking in this space, right? The way that we would want our kids to be treated or our siblings or ourselves to be treated when we were youth. That's how we should be. That's what we should be centering in our policy judgments. Um, you, you mentioned specifically that folks aren't or counties aren't really able to collect on a lot of this debt. So let's get into funding a little bit. One way that county courts are funded is the child care fund. Can you talk about the significance of the child care fund and specifically how Ottawa County benefits from it? Oh, yeah. The, the child care fund is a tremendous partnership with the state of Michigan to give us 50% for every dollar we spend on at-risk kids, mainly defined as in the current, you know, child care fund uh, eligibility requirements is intensive level kids on a one to 20 ratio. Um, here in Ottawa County, we, we benefit tremendously. I mean, I, we have a pretty significant budget here. And so that ability to get 50% reimbursed goes a long way to our county funding unit, supporting us in doing creative and progressive work around juvenile justice. And so I would say for us, um, it has benefited us in the ability to promote better justice systems and treatment systems here in Ottawa County, because our funding unit knows that they're gonna get reimbursed 50% in its current state for those activities. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's afforded us the opportunity to have our own day treatment school. Um, again, we have um, five therapists on staff. We have um, a pretty robust probation department that's doing effective practices and community supervision. Uh, techniques. Um, I know that maybe most aren't familiar with that, but it's an evidence-based probation model out of the University of Cincinnati that only a few of us are doing. It's afforded us to do things like that. Um, it's allowed us to purchase evidence-based programming around substance abuse and sexually offending behaviors. And all of that is 50% reimbursable, right? So it really benefits everybody, the funding unit, because they're not out 100% of the cost. It builds a partnership with the state of Michigan to effectively alter the path of juvenile justice. And most importantly, the kids get the treatment and services that rightfully are deserved when you come into a justice system that's really foundational concept is rehabilitation. You mentioned that you've been able to hire five therapists, work on all these projects. It's fair to say that Ottawa County wouldn't be able to do these things without the child care fund, right? In an area that's not very revenue generating, it's not like the county would be able to do this on its own. Yeah, I mean, it definitely would present other challenges. Again, I, I'm fortunate to work in a county where, um, you know, at least in my administration role, I didn't serve an administration role in other areas that they've supported juvenile justice. But yeah, I think if if you don't have that level of reimbursement from the state of Michigan, it certainly would present challenges to have all the things we have. Um, because where does that money come from? Sure. You know, I mean, you're dependent on so many layers and we're not the only department in the county, right? Like there's parks and IT and public health and all these entities that do arguably as good a work as anybody, right? Because these right. are the things that keep county government going as well and serve the citizens of our community. So if you don't have that reimbursement level, 
yeah, I mean, you could argue that our budget would maybe be half of what it is. And so just cut everything down in size or sure. eliminate. Yeah, you talked about intensive care. One of the reforms proposed by the Juvenile Justice Task Force is to potentially relieve that intensive care requirement. Can you talk about the merits of that, how intensive care can be valuable, and in some circumstances, maybe the requirement for intensive care um, being reimbursed is maybe counterproductive? The current model is a, is a great funding model to support a collaboration, a collaborative relationship with the state and the county and local courts, right? But if you look at research, maybe it maybe it doesn't align with best research practices. You're talking about incorporating a risk and needs assessment, for example. We have used the youth level service inventory here in Ottawa County since 2013. So we've, we've been using risk and needs assessment for almost 10 years now. When we implemented that tool, intensive wasn't driven by a one to 20 ratio, it was driven by a risk score, low, moderate, or high. And the research suggests that low risk kids, if you involve them more deeply in the justice system, likely you will make them worse than better. So why do you deal with them? But for a lot of years, we are, and, and some, we still are, right? Like, because we don't know if, we're, if you're not using a risk and needs assessment, then you don't know the level of care youth needs. This objective screening tool allows us to define intensive level work as those kids in the moderate high risk category. And so we focus our community-based efforts in that area. And since we've introduced the, the youth level of service inventory, we've been able to reduce our out-of-home placement care by at least 50%. Wow. Um, and detention at one point was around 60 or 70% reduction, which means now you're actually using an objective, validated, scientific instrument grounded in research to tell you what intensive level of care means. So you're hopefully avoiding more out-of-home care, and you're letting the low-risk kids remain in their homes and their community with very little intervention and focusing in this, this middle area where your resources should go. So this new model could potentially be helpful for supporting and promoting diversion. You know, you could argue that in some jurisdictions, you could use the child care fund for that now to one to 20 ratio, but it really doesn't align with the research that way. The language doesn't. And so this model allows to say, you know what, that's an important part of the justice system is to get kids out of it quickly, if not diverted altogether. And so support that with funding. So the 7525 will allow us to use diversion and consent calendar as a reimbursement eligibility item because that supports the research. And then keeping the 50-50 for out-of-home placement, it doesn't cut your funding, uh, but it's not an incentive for the county to put kids in a residential care facility. How's that, how's that look in Ottawa County? Those are definitely not places. Like we got a 40 bed facility and, I, and you can come tour it. And I think you'll find that we do good work there because we have a therapist in there. We, we do programming. And as, as wonderful as our staff are and as clean as our building is, don't we, ha don't we wish we had a world where nobody had to be locked up, right, you know? Right. And so we shouldn't really incentivize that as a, a tool to use, right? Yes, it should be used for those most critical, significant, serious issues that happen in our communities. But the bulk of our work and energy should be spent on those kids that even are at higher risk can be managed in the community if you leverage the child care fund to do things like we've done. 
you know, and that is what the task force is saying, get risk and need assessments involved, develop resources in your community that support the use of community-based in-home services. Aside from encouraging in-home care, how else do you think that the changes to the child care fund uh, might be productive? I also think that it alleviates some of the stress on the funding unit for some of the other changes that might happen, like, like fees and costs that you're talking about, right? Like you in theory are going to get more money out of child care funding than you're ever going to collect anywhere else. Um, right. Because going from 50-50 to 75-25 is a huge jump and a huge commitment, um, honestly, from the governor and the lieutenant governor who, who co-chaired the task force and the legislature. Like that's a huge commitment on their part that we're very appreciative to say, you know what, started this journey of reform a couple of years ago, and we're going to put the money behind it to make it happen. And I think that's a true testament of what leadership does in government when they really want to affect meaningful change. And that will go a long way to helping uh, our courts and youth across the state. Yeah, you mentioned the legislature and the governor and the lieutenant governor and how they've been super supportive of juvenile justice reforms in recent years. But I also wanted to mention Chief Justice Clement. We had her on the podcast last year, and she expressed just how committed she is to juvenile justice reform. She, of course, was on that task force. And I think it's a great testament to Michigan's commitment as a state that each branch of our government is led by folks who care about juvenile justice reform in a bipartisan way. Right? And let me say too, I wanna to say, Chief Justice is an amazing person. I mean, I don't wanna leave her out because she has been a true champion for juvenile justice for the last few years. Um, and, and MAFCA was so happy that she became the Chief Justice and kept juvenile justice as one of her pri or only priority projects. Yes. And she has supported this more than anybody. She even pre the task force was participating in webinars and, and, and speaking in the papers and anywhere she could to talk about her passion to reform and support juvenile justice in the state of Michigan. And she hasn't changed that in the three years I've known her. And I'm so appreciative of her leadership and her continued vision for what she wants juvenile justice to be. And I wanna support that. Tom Laddick is the president of the Michigan Association for Family Court Administration and the juvenile court director at the 20th Circuit Court in Ottawa County. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We will look forward to having you back on the show, and thank you for all that you do. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate all the work MCYJ is doing in Michigan for juveniles. Keep up the good work. We'll be right back with some final thoughts and updates. Today, I want to share two updates and a final thought. In addition to the other juvenile justice related budget items, which we'll eventually cover, Governor Whitmer proposed $2.5 million for the State Appellate Defender's Office, SATO, to support the resentencing of juvenile offenders serving a life sentence. As I'm sure you're aware, there are administrative and legal costs associated with resentencing proceedings. Everyone that's there, courtroom, all of that, it all costs money. 
It's just yet another argument for fixing our juvenile justice system so we can get it right the first time. We don't have to go back, spend a bunch of money, and fix it. So the governor is investing a significant amount of money to make sure we get this right now and we're able to resentence those juvenile offenders that are serving life sentences in line with the rulings of the United States Supreme Court and the Michigan Supreme Court. Also, as I mentioned on the last episode, the governor is proposing $557,000 to create a juvenile justice unit within SATO. It would provide appellate counsel for youth in the juvenile justice system who can't afford it, and this is directly in line with the recommendations of the task force, and it has the benefit of being a bipartisan proposal. We got into the merits of that in our last episode. If you didn't catch that one, we dive deep into juvenile public defense and also at the appellate level. Here's my final thought. In our upcoming episodes, we will be talking to many advocates for juvenile justice reform. We're talking to experts, attorneys, court administrators, justice-impacted individuals, hopefully, and others. If you have someone in particular that you'd like us to reach out to, please let me know. My email will be in the show notes, as always. I'm especially interested in hearing from someone who might have a unique perspective about the juvenile justice system, even people that may have a different point of view or are coming from a different place. I think it's important to have a diversity of ideas and of perspectives, especially people who have experience with the juvenile justice system, either working in it or going through it. We'd love to hear from those folks. So if you know of anyone that we should reach out to, or if you are that person, please reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to talk to you. And that's our show today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have questions, don't hesitate to write in. For more information about the podcast, and the show notes from this episode, check out our show page at miyouthjustice.org forward slash the table. This show is written and produced by me, Hussein Hadri. Our theme music is Wasted Education by Blue Topaz. This show is the copyrighted work of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll talk to you next month.